Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. spend a lot of time on this text. So I really encourage you to have the text and to read it. Um, it's called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And at the rate I'm feeling, we're going to be doing this for a few months. So um, I really encourage you to, to read the text. And we're only almost on chapter five. So um, please get it. Um, I really like Stephen Batchelor's translation, which is this one, and most of the t Stephen's translation you can actually download off the internet. Um, Alan Wallace and his wife have a really lovely translation, which I'm using mostly for Chapter 5. Uh, Pema Chodron has a great commentary on the text called um, No Time to Lose. And... Uh, uh, Probably the most read translation these days is by the Padmakara Translation Group, which is published by Shambhala. That's the easiest read, actually. So um, please, please get it and read it. It's good for your health. There, there are some Buddhist texts that are really good to have beside your toilet, and this is one of them. <laughs> Okay, so here is my intention for tonight. Uh, my talk tonight is going to be a response to Celeste's email this week, um, which I'll read in a second, part of it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then um, uh, I want to review chapter four and do the first few lines of chapter five. And then I want to spend a few weeks on chapter five. How's that? Whatever. Just start talking. Here's part of what Celeste said, without her permission. In the text, I feel like Shantideva is saying in so many words, 
Emotions are an illusion that don't serve us. They cause us tremendous suffering, so we dispel them within our hearts and strive for wisdom instead. You explained in your interpretation that emotions are actually conditions that motivate us to act. The emotions may be illusions, but they are motivating illusions. Just gaining distance from them doesn't really make us engaged in the world. My question is, does Shanti Deva ever acknowledge this about emotions, acknowledge that they actually serve a purpose? Or is this your lens on the text? My assumption is the latter of the two. And then she goes on. <laughs> Should I tell the part about your mom? <laughs> so, uh, we'll try and answer that tonight. Because I've been thinking a lot about this too. Um, let me start with the first few lines of chapter 5. Uh, the chapter is called Guarding Alertness. Uh, a lot of times this chapter is translated as discipline. Those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. What is the elephant of your mind? What does that mean? The unleashed or untamed elephant of your mind. Consider that. So, untamed, it's wild. But also, uh, elephants crush. Part of your mind that can crush. Can crush others. How many of you have ever been in a position of power with someone you don't like? And you've crushed them in the schoolyard? Or maybe you've been on the other end of it, where you've been crushed by someone playing with their power. Or do you have in you that energy that just wants to crush? That wants to crush your own treasures, your own kindness, your creativity? when you're out of control. So this chapter has to do with working with that elephant energy, that crushing energy. And you work with it with discipline. When I say the word practice, uh, some of you might hear in that discipline. Because to practice, it has to be repetitive. It's a discipline to practice. It's not just a sentiment. Oh, I practice. I practice mindfulness. So to practice takes discipline. And uh, in the, the Mahayana spirit that we practice in at center of gravity, 
uh, our discipline is always infused with bodhicitta, with this ideal of practicing in a way that alleviates our own suffering, but also alleviates the pain in the world. Aggression, prejudice, so many ways that we can alleviate the pain in the world. And so we often ask, I have in my heart the intention of alleviating the pain in the world, but what is my part? And our part, first and foremost, is to tame our own mind. So when I say work with your mind, do you really let that in? Or right now, are you somewhere else? You don't have to put your hand up. It's probably everyone who's not reading the text. So at Center of Gravity, we we have a practice that predisposes us to a life of awakening and also has another part, which is this larger intention to help out, to serve. And how do we serve? We start by working with our mind. So if you're easily triggered, your best intentions are not going to work out too well. We, we want to become practitioners that are skillful enough that when we enter explosive situations, our presence de-escalates those situations. What is more beneficial in our culture than someone who's not explosive? Somebody who can be in conflict and not escalate it. And steadiness is contagious. Spend time with someone who's steady and it rubs off. There's a a story that Lori might know better than me um, about um, uh, a time in Vietnam when refugees were leaving by boat. They were called boat people. And they were escaping, I think, to Cambodia. And um, on the boats, these small boats, which were overcrowded, they became targets for pirates. So pirates would come and rob people. Pirates would come and rape people. Um, And some of you might know there's some real horror stories from that time. It's actually still going on in many places. Um, I read wherever it was this description of uh, the boat people from Thich Nhat Hanh. And in his description, he said, the, the way people survived on the boats, you imagine how terrifying this is to get on a boat in open water like this, knowing that there are pirates and that's your only option, was that if one person on the boat was steady, if one person on the boat was calm, then it would be contagious. And those are the people um, that, when they arrived on the other shore, uh, did not have the kind of stress. 
that others had. They were not in a panic all the time. Just one person on the boat was steady. So I like to imagine that. Um, how many of you have moods? Anybody here have moods? So imagine that your household is a boat. And that when you come downstairs in the morning in one of your moods, it affects everybody. It affects everyone. And then try to do it with your family. And try to do it in this sangha. When you come here, really check when you have a mood. Spaced out. Irritated. And really work with your mood here. This is a place where you can practice that. And what are moods? My, my theory is that moods are caused by hormones, diet, and emails. <laughs> and then maybe your boat can be this whole city. To be in this city in a way that de-escalates stress. That de-escalates conflict. that values kindness and beauty. And we also know that moods may come from emails and hormones and diet, but also they come pretty uninvited sometimes. Suddenly it's in the day and you just realize you're in a mood. And it's important that you don't pretend it's not happening or that you don't turn it against yourself. Why am I in this mood? And negative mood swings can't hold together for very long without thoughts. I'm going to say that again. Negative moods can't hold together for very long without thoughts. you have to inject stories into negative mental states in order to keep them afloat. If you don't, if you don't slide stories into your negative moods, they don't last very long. They're just patterns of sensation that are impermanent. Just prakriti. It's changing. So, back to chapter four. (laughs) Because in the last chapter, we talked about working with turbulent emotions. And I gave you a four-step practice called SANE. The first step was stop. The second step was allow. The third step was investigate. And the fourth step was non-identification. So the first step is to stop and recognize, literally to recognize, to recognize that there's a mood there. Maybe you want to name it and just label it. And then to allow it in. Allow it to be there. Then to investigate it. All the way to its very end. 
all the way to its bitter end. You know this term, bitter end, comes from sailing. It's um, when a, a, a bit is is like um, 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 what's it called now that like like on a dock that you wrap a, a rope around cleat. a cleat, and um, so when a rope when when a when a rope is wrapped around its cleat and it's been undone. That very end where you just don't have any more slack is called the bitter end. So you want to watch that in your moods. Watch it all the way to the very end. Very end of the line. So you want to watch a mood arise and then it pass away. That's what you're investigating is change. And then the end stands for non-identification. So these are two sides of Celeste's email. One side is to accept and investigate and just watch. Then there's another practice you can do, which is you don't identify with the mood. And that's actually not so much watching, but actually feeling. Becoming the energy of the mood, but not identifying with it at all, at the same time. So that you have the energy of the mood that you can really learn from, but you're not can, you're not identified with it. Um, I want to offer you some practices for how to work with negative moods, really strong moods. <coughs> um, so the first practice is called riding the wave. And this is going to be your homework. So here's how it works. A strong emotion starts to arise. And you recognize it's arising. And you sit down in a chair. And you ride the wave of the emotion all the way to its bitter end. And then when it passes, you stay there a little longer just to feel what it's like as it's passed, to know the passing of the emotion. Okay. Now, a lot of you are hearing this, and you're going to say, that's a really cool idea. I could imagine doing that. And that'll be as far as you get. Or, that's pretty great that Michael does that. <laughs> but this week, I want you to try this practice. So when, uh, let's say anger is arising. Does anybody have any anger in their life right now? It's not a big one for me right now, but maybe for you it's a big one. So let's say some anger arises. So when it arises, get out of the situation, sit down in a chair, and stop, allow in the anger, check it out in the body, and ride the wave and watch it pass. Feel how it passes away. And then also know the passing. Not just the arising, but also the passing. Um, there is a Vipassana teacher named Gil Frenzel uh, in, on the West Coast. Um, he, he teaches a practice called riding out the desire. It's kind of the same thing. 
But I just wanted to read his description because it's really lovely and there's about seven metaphors in it. Which work or may not work, I don't know. Riding out the desire. This is good for people who have addiction issues. Or it could be anything. Wait till you have a really strong, juicy desire. And when that time comes... Sit down in a chair and don't give in to it. Ride it out. All the lawyers of the mind come out and will explain to you why you have to go do something. And then you quiet the lawyers. And then the publicists come out. The commercials come out. And all this tremendous surge of energy, this tremendous compulsion, really powerful, but you're committed like being at the rodeo. You're not going to fall off your horse. And sooner or later, it's guaranteed the wave will kind of crest and you'll find yourself on the other side. So I love the surfing, the rodeo, the lawyers. (laughs) One sentence. And you'll get calm eventually, and the people I've known who have hung in there through a really good wave and watched it come out to the other side have felt so empowered in their life. Wow, they say, I can be stronger than my addiction, than these very strong emotions. I can learn how to breathe through it and how to be present for it. Isn't that nice? Our culture is infatuated with anger. So it's really important that we explore strong emotions like anger in this way. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, I, I, I'm, I'm teaching a course, I have to say, too. If this, if this talk tonight, I'm about to give you a lot of quotes, sounds kind of you know, like I've done a lot of research. I have. Um, because I, I'm giving a presentation in two months Uh, at U of T for therapists about alternative ways of working with anger other than venting. And so I went to Robart's library and I took out every Buddhist book I could find on anger, of which there's a lot, actually. Um, So I'm going to read some of my favorite passages. Um, Here's what Thich Nhat Hanh writes. Americans cannot speak about anger and how to handle our anger without paying attention to all the things that we consume. Because anger is not separate from those things. It's kind of a provocative statement. Let me me read that again. Americans cannot speak about anger and how to handle anger without paying attention to all the things that we consume. Because anger is not separate from those things. So this is his commentary on the idea that we explored last week, that emotions are not things, they're a composite of conditions. They're not just in you, they're not just in someone else, they're not just in the environment, they're not just in your past, but it's a coming together of all those things. A certain person says something with a certain inflection that triggers you. 
And maybe nobody else triggers you like that. Just that constellation. So the emotion's not a thing. It's a moment in time. It doesn't have a, a, the, the existence that we tend to give it through our pop psychological understanding of emotions, which are these things that we have. My emotions. <laughs> and there's a story of Thubten Chodron, who is a Tibetan teacher, who did a workshop with mediators. Um, this is a story from her book, uh, the beginning of her book called Working with Anger. And uh, she talks about how she's with a group of mediators, and this group of mediators says to her, um, we have to work with anger because it's beneficial and necessary because it gives information about what's wrong. Avoiding anger doesn't give mediating parties the abilities to reach the ability to reach the real issues at hand. So again, this is what Celeste was mentioning in her email which is that there's something about emotions that are mobilizing and they're motivating, and you don't want to cut that off. You have to be able to touch it, but you have to do it in a safe way. So if there's a situation of escalating violence or conflict, get out of it and do the riding the wave practice so you can really know that energy so that when you're in those situations, you can work with it. Here's another practice that you can do that I work with all the time. Um, this is how to take the uh, riding the wave practice into relationship. And I call this the fire lookout. You know, I have this kind of romantic, I'm a bit of a romantic if you don't know, but I have this kind of like romance of the 1950s and all the fire towers in the high Sierras. I, I wish I could be in a sleeping bag in one of those fire towers with Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. And all those guys, I imagine, wrote such good poetry because they basically watched clouds all the time. So I have this practice that, that I, or a way I think of it, is when something's escalating, I visualize myself uh, climbing up one of those lookout towers. Has anybody ever been up one of those? They're really tall. And they look over huge swaths of forest. And really, when you're up there, you're just watching the sky. So when you're in uh, interpersonal conflict and it's escalating, visualize yourself going up one of these fire towers and just looking out looking out at the weather pattern, looking out at the movement of anger. And, and the purpose of this is that sometimes, maybe we should shut the door there. So, I feel like I'm listening to my <coughs> kitchen right now, which makes me feel like I should get up and help. <laughs> And this is a counter to our contemporary idea of what to do with anger, which really comes from Freud. Freud 
this idea of anger he called the hydraulic system. Freud's metaphors are always mechanical. Um, and in his hydraulic theory, the idea is that anger over time builds up pressure, and that pressure has to be released. And that's how we usually think about anger. And from a Freudian perspective, trying to stop anger would be like trying to stop the sunset. It has to be released somehow. But the problem with anger for a meditator is that we see that anger is distorting. It blurs our ability to see clearly. Uh, my favorite book on working with moods and strong emotions is called Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. One thing not publicized about Daniel Goleman, who I've met many times, is that he's a, a Zen meditator, a serious meditator, um, which he kind of doesn't, you know, if you read Emotional Intelligence, you can see it, but he doesn't advertise himself this way. But listen to what he writes in his book. Venting anger is one of the worst ways to cool down. Outbursts of rage typically pump up the emotional brain's arousal, leaving people feeling more angry, not less angry. So the problem with anger is that it, it distorts what you're looking at, and it can turn an event into a symbol for a whole relationship that's actually not accurate. Uh, here's what Thich Nhat Hanh says. Venting your anger is a practice based on ignorance. Oh, I'm going to say beforehand, I think Thich Nhat Hanh goes a little too far here. Venting anger is a practice based on ignorance. When you imagine the object of your anger as a pillow... Hitting the object of your hate, you rehearse ignorance and anger. People who engage in this feed the roots of their anger by rehearsing it. People who engage in this feed the roots of their anger by rehearsing it. So I, I feel that's going a little too far. Because in the example of punching a pillow, to my mind I imagine someone who's worked up who's in a place where they're hitting a pillow and not another person. So I think there are times where people, especially who are under-expressors, when they feel anger, they go into depression. Because depression is often internalized anger. It's emotion that's not embodied. So there are some kinds of people where you need to bring those emotions into their body or their time bombs. And those kind of people tend to be the people that repress strong emotion when they get into spiritual practice, which we call spiritual bypassing, or the under-expressors. If mindfulness means to be present of what's going on around us and in us, then if we can express our anger in a safe place, then we can take care of it. 
And sometimes there's phases in our life where we need to go throw a rock or go yell. It's one of the troubles with living in a city is it's hard to go yell. Sometimes you have to go out in a forest or underwater to yell. Bathtubs are good. So if we can recognize anger or any strong emotion as a changing experience, then it doesn't have to overcome us. In his book on turning the mind into an ally, Sakyong Mipham Rinpoche says, mindfulness, that with mindfulness, an emotion that feels as big as a house can be dismantled brick by brick. I like this. Uh, the Dalai Lama, in his book on anger, by the way, I have to admit, this is the strangest thing, I've never read a book by the Dalai Lama. I've met him, I've heard him talk many times, uh, but I've never actually read. And he's amazing. (laughs) I can see why he's so popular. (laughs) When he talks, his English is not great. Um, And he uses a translator. But somehow when he writes, his English is incredible. And his vocabulary is so diverse. Uh, So I encourage everybody to read books by the Dalai Lama. Anyways, here's what he says. I could never imagine him saying this. (laughs) Get at the root. Appreciate the causal nexus, the chain that would then ultimately explode in an emotional state like anger in the hopes of stopping it at an early stage. It's a beautiful sentence. So, get at the root. How do you get at the root? Appreciate the causal nexus. Remember we were saying that that an emotion is a composite. Uh So appreciate that. In other words, it's not all about the other person. Has anyone ever done that before? Or it's not all about me. I went through this this week. Uh, Somebody complained about me uh, online. And in a kind of vigorous way. This is what happens when you're online a lot. Anyways. Some, and it's actually a, a, somebody who I respect a lot. So my, my teacher, Enkyo Roshi, defended me online, saying, I know this person, and here's her, where he was coming from. And I was really touched that she defended me. But then she wrote to me and said, I've defended you, but you know, here's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was really upset. So I decided, okay. I'm really upset, so I'm going to leave this for two days. I'm not going to write back. I'm just going to leave it and see how I feel in two days. And then I wrote back this really calm letter, kind of explaining all my points. And then she wrote back this lovely letter saying, I'm, I'm really glad I defended you. You clarified this for me. Everything was fine. But if I wrote the letter that I had been planning... <laughs> to blow my opponent out of the water. (laughs) 
um, the whole thing would escalate. And, you know, I've learned when I get a hot email to leave it alone for a couple days. But I've learned that the hard way. Have you? Just to leave it alone. The email that feels like it's so hot, it is burning a hole in your inbox. (laughs) You should just leave it there. Now, taking apart anger, brick by brick, does not eliminate anger. It doesn't destroy it. There's a talk I gave at Occupy Vancouver you can watch online um, where I talk about this because it was a day where there was a lot of anger. And uh, what I said was, it's really important in social movements that we learn how to take care of our anger, but that we actually use the momentum of our anger to recognize that something needs to change. And I think that actually is really powerful. To, to notice that your anger is showing up for a reason. And you need to learn that there's something wrong. And to work with that, but not to act it out and not to act it in. So anger shows us where we're triggered. And it can also teach us, and here's the deeper level of the teaching, the non-existence of emotion. That when you really see something as a causal nexus and then you watch it fall away, you see its inherent non-existence. How did this thing that seems so powerful right in my gut turn out minutes later, some breaths later, to be nothing? Not a thing. So what we're seeing is the mental mechanics of anger. To work with your buttons your triggers. Your buttons are your responsibility. Our buttons are our responsibility. No matter how the empire is torturing you, your trigger is your responsibility to work with. The last thing I want to say that's not in Shantideva's text, but is just something I think we all should think about, and I'm going to end with this, is that something that I think doesn't get a lot of airtime in talking about strong emotions is the role of our imagination. Um, we are nothing without an imagination. And I think we have superficial imagination, which is the kind of imagining mind that's always distracted, that we're trying to reel in with practice. But I think when we're not so triggered, when we're quieter, when we're calm, and when we're really sane, we have access to a much deeper imagination. And it's 
that kind of imagination that allows us to shift viewpoints and see what we're experiencing from a place of deeper wisdom. And I think it doesn't get much airplay, but I think it's really important to recognize that to really work deeply with strong emotions, you have to have a deep imagination. You have to be able to see many points of view. So our intention in uh, developing a body and an imagination that can hold these powerful emotions, allow them, and then drop them, and then really investigate that process, uh, allows for a life of bodhicitta, of awakening for ourselves, and a passion for awakening this city, this community, your community, your city, your family. So important. So important. It's peacemaking. You know, Gandhi, when he talked about uh, nonviolence, his primary strategy was non-cooperation. I mean, not going along with. And maybe if we're to take that to heart, then when we practice nonviolence, that means that when we're triggered, when we're caught, when we're hooked by really strong moods, we have to practice non-cooperation. You don't cooperate with them. You don't go where they want to go. And then you're a peacemaker. Remember when we had this idea of peacemaking and it was a real thing, not just advertising? Real peacemaking. So, I'll stop there. And maybe you might have something to to say or reflect on. What what do you hear in what I'm I'm saying? Because I know it's so easy to hear some of these things and say, yeah, 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 yeah. And then um, the time comes when you really need it and it, it's not there to work with because it's not being practiced. It's not right there. Anger is one that I think is an easy one to understand, but would you comment on the other emotions that, for which your, your recommendations for practice might be not? Yeah. And part of this, and I'll, I'll speak very personally, I'm not as angry as I used to be. Hmm. Maybe I should be getting more angry about the things that are wrong and about which there are many around here, yeah. as in the city. So I just wonder, that's one that, that I almost seem to suppress naturally, but there are others that just show up. Uh-huh. Any thoughts or comments? Yeah, I do. I have thoughts and comments. Um, this summer I was at a conference in Colorado called the Buddhist Geeks Conference. And uh, 
Has anyone seen the logo for Buddhist Geeks? It's like this Buddha with these really cool glasses. <laughs> um, I, I lived for, uh, I don't know if it was a week or how, we were there a while, uh, with uh, Stephen and Martine Batchelor, and uh, who are, you know, real mentors of mine. And... Um, so uh, every time Stephen got up to talk, um, those of us in the know were glued to the edge of our seat because he gave these series of talks about the future of Buddhism that were so incredible, comparing Buddhist practice to the practice of Henry Cartier-Bresson taking a photograph. I mean... These talks were just, I was amazed by his talks. Everybody should listen to them. I'm getting off topic. Anyways, uh, whenever Stephen would be done his talk, he would just kind of walk around the room and talk to people. And it was no big deal. And he wasn't really that excited that the talk went really well. And sometimes when he gave an answer and you could tell he was in a dialogue and he didn't really kind of nail the answer in the way he usually does he was never really upset about it. He just was so even all the time. And not even in a way that's dull. Not even in a way that's neutral. But just really even. And I noticed in myself that when I was on a panel, or when I gave the, the um, keynote talk, that when things went well, I was so happy. I was so elated. You know? And... Also, you know, I'm half the age of most of the presenters. And the front row there was like Stephen, David Loy, uh, uh, Lama Surya Das. I mean, it was like, you know, everyone who's, I've read all their books, you know. So I'd give a talk and they'd be really happy. So I'd be so happy. And then sometimes I didn't quite say what I wanted to say and I'd be so upset, you know. I think, oh, you know, I... I really knew what I wanted to say, but I didn't say it. And then I started to realize, oh, this could be a better practice for me, is that when I feel elation, not to hold on to it so much. Why do I practice this so much with the negative emotions, but with the positive emotions? I need to do this better. So now when workshops end, and they've been really good, or the retreat's been great, or some student had a big breakthrough. Um, I'm happy for them. But I watch in myself where the energy really is doing this. And I just don't hold on to it so strongly. So I think we have to do this for all the emotions. The example I gave last week, I don't know if you were here last week, was the emotion of embarrassment. What do you do when you're embarrassed? Or when you're ashamed? What do you do when you're ashamed? So I think we can all look at, you know, whatever moods or stronger emotions (coughs) affect us, work with those ones. I'm using anger because there's always so many questions about anger, and I think a lot of us are angry. Don't even know it sometimes. Until you get the right trigger, and then it's right there. Um, I find that 
um, to work with these emotions, I need to practice with the little, really little anger. Yeah. Because then I can actually do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I wait for the big emotion to come along yeah. and I haven't practiced with the little ones, yeah, forget it. Forget it. Yeah. That's kind of what I mean when I was saying, like, you have to practice it all the time. Right. Or when the big one comes, it's just right. the skill's not there. But I'm just saying don't wait for the big one to come to practice. Right. Practice yeah. with the little ones. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like, like someone cuts in front of you in traffic. Yeah. Practice with that one. Yeah. yeah. What, if, what if we just do it right now? I mean, everybody right now probably has some place in their body where they can feel there's a little contraction. Hungry? A little bored? Maybe, has anyone checked the clock? Or just some place with just a little bit of agitation. Or just a little bit of distraction. And just put on your radar. You know, Find that. And then check it. Recognize it. Right? Stop. Allow it to be there. Investigate it. And don't identify with it. We can all do this right now. Isn't that interesting? I can see everybody doing it right now, squirming around. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. I think you're right on about that. I don't know your name. What's your name? Lucas. Lucas. When you give it, when you give an email time, or we're saying like a day or two, it, uh, it not only gives you, you a time to reflect, but it gives the other person the time to reflect on what they wrote. Yeah. And, uh, so it's mutually, it's mutually beneficial. I found it really useful for both parties. Yeah. yeah. Um, so some of you know Matthew Remsky. Um, he, he has a really great definition of nonviolence, which is protection. He says that nonviolence is outdated. You don't have to agree with this, but this is his interpretation, which I think is really interesting to consider. That he says that nonviolence, if you look closely at real changes that have happened in nonviolent movements, they've been on the back of revolutions with a lot of violence. This is his theory. And that if we want to understand nonviolence now in a deeper way, we should think of it as protection. That we need to protect people who don't have a voice. We need to protect forests. We need to protect animals. We need to protect um, the impoverished. And that this would be possibly a more interesting way of thinking about nonviolence. And I, I think he's on to something. I, I think this is really interesting. So in a way you could say 
when you don't return the email, you're protecting your own heart and you're also protecting the other person from your rage. And in that way, it's nonviolent. And that interpretation kind of rings true for me, Matthews, around protection, because when you go back to the old chants that we chant, that many of you know, like Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Bunaktu, in all those chants, we're always asking for protection. We're always acknowledging that when we practice as a Sangha, we're protecting ourselves. It's interesting uh, to explore. And if I was as smart as Matthew, I could probably think through this a little more, but I can't right now. Yes? I was pleased uh, last week to take the same word. Yeah. And I thought, and I was right, I was glad to check the dictionary, and en français, it said, the word same. S-A-I-N, uh-huh. means health. Health, right, yeah. And wholesome. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's and good. I just wanted to bring that yeah. to you, that yeah. word you, you're using, it has that very quality. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I use that? <laughs> Kathy. She lives in Montreal. And she told me this story that she was on an airplane with Thich Nhat Hanh. And she, you know, got to sit next to him, which basically means he was cornered. <laughs> <laughs> and she told him that her job as a therapist is anger management. And he said, when somebody is really angry, what do you do? And she says, well, sometimes I might get them to take a pillow and to punch it or to kick it so that they can get the anger out. And he said, oh, well, what about the pillow? (laughs) (laughs) So that story is a little bit behind this quote. I don't know which came first, but if that's how he's thinking, then I think it presents to therapists a really interesting cross-cultural perspective around anger, which is how sometimes, and this is what Daniel Goleman was getting at, Venting anger reinforces ignorance. But I also think that you can take that too far. 
And I also think there are safe and therapeutic environments where you can vent anger if you happen to be in a phase or of a constitution where you can't embody what you feel or you have no idea what you feel. Then there is a time for that. But if venting is the only way you work with that, that's going to be the samskara you, you, you set up. So I think we need to keep both alive. Somebody else? Yes? It's the connection between protection and emotion, not my emotion. Yeah. Uh, and so in my work, I work with a lot of youth who don't have a voice. Yeah. And so... I have a lot of pressure in the life and that comes out preventing. Yeah. So I get yelled at, threatened, yeah. all kinds of things. And I find in my work that that hardly ever triggers me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get a bit of fight or flight, Yeah. Uh, but I don't get mad and I can remain calm and, and steady. Yeah. Um, as though I'm almost giving them some, some room because of what's happening in their lives. And yeah. then with uh, people that I know or personal connections, the smallest thing can lead to much bigger anger. Yeah. Uh, even so, it's almost uh, maybe not, I'm expecting more or having different expectations yeah. for those personal connections. Yeah. Which is just a really interesting sort of connection between yeah the emotion that's around yeah how I value people yeah you know. mm. yeah no, I mean. Again, that's like this whole dimension that we could spend a lot more time on. It's just the social dimension of anger, too. It makes me think of... I don't remember what year it was in the early to mid-90s. I was in Paris, and it was at the time of the riots. And in the suburbs of Paris, there's a huge number of suburbs of Paris that are all African. And there were incredible riots starting. And I remember, so I I took the subway out there to go see what was happening, and I was terrified. I mean, it was a kind of anger that... I don't know if I had seen so many people this angry before. And uh, the feeling in me was that all this is right. It, It seemed perfectly right. So... How do we have anger in a way that the intention is not to cause harm? Right? <laughs> and this is tricky. The intention is not to cause harm, but the energy of the anger is saying something that has to be said. And we have to listen to that. And I think as Laurie was saying, if you don't have a practice that's taking care of that all the time, how are you going to do that when things really flare up? So then if you scale that up to the culture, how does that work at a social level? I don't know. The sociologists in the room need to say something about that. You can say something about that. You see it. I mean, yeah, I see it all the time. And I, coming here, I wish there were ways to share sort of this practice with a lot of those folks because I know yeah. I get yelled at and stormed off and threatened and 
all kinds of huge emotions come out. Yeah. And I never really feel scared. I know no one's going to do anything to me. Just that's their way of expressing yeah. things. That's their way of moving through the world because yeah. that's all some folks know. Yeah. It's, yeah. We should have more conversation about this. We will. If you send me an email, then maybe I'll use it in the next talk. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm going to be in trouble for that. Did you have your hand up? Um, yeah, I was just thinking about the transformative power of anger. Like, when, you know, we, talk, we just talked about the punching of the pillow, but what if, what about when it turns into cleaning your house or going for a run or getting every one of your errands done because you have that um, and and because you have so much energy you mean from yeah that, right yeah um, and that like that's a that's a strange kind of ineffable place when does that when we when you turn that corner from like wanting to punch something to vacuuming or whatever, <laughs> writing an essay, whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, that you transform anger into. Like, like what we've been talking about, like, is it a motivator? Are emotions motivators to action? Mm -hmm. Different ones to different... I think the examples you're using are diffusing the energy. But when the Dalai Lama talks about the causal nexus, yeah. he's saying investigate it so you see the the different pieces in the anger. So that there's some wisdom around the anger too. It's not just that you have anger, you see it pass, it's diffused. Yeah. Or sublimated or whatever. But, but the Dalai Lama is saying something a little deeper. He's saying, but actually look at the components. What's the stressor? What's the trigger? What's going on in my body? What did they say? What does that remind me of? But does that like leave people to their um, what they come into the world with? Like, let's say uh, an agoraphobic can look at their the causal relationship with their with you know the causal nexus there, yeah. and then might be these are the triggers, and so what you work with those then way back there. Yeah, and maybe you have to say something like, "This is not a safe environment for me to be in." So I shouldn't put myself in this situation because I can't work with it when I get triggered. So I'm going to try not to put myself in that situation in this way. Or maybe I need to have someone with me. Or, you know, to figure some way to work with it. That, that's one piece. The other piece, and from my experience doing therapy with people, is that most people have a label for their emotions and they've never gone much deeper than that. I'm clinically depressed. And I would all, always say to people when they say I'm depressed, I say, I don't know what that means. What do you mean? I say, of course you know what that means. You're a therapist. I say, but what, what does that mean, depressed? If I was a poet, I would never use the word depressed. <laughs> Duke Ellington had something like 85 songs with the word blue in the title. What kind of blue? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Where do you feel it? So, so the point is that the agoraphobic, sometimes people are just in the emotion. 
They just deal with the emotion, what they think the emotion is. But there's a nexus under that that we have to get into that's more complicated that we're always learning from. Mike? When I'm hanging out with my friends or kids, um, they can often get super worked up, sometimes really angry or upset. And um, what I feel like they want from me is that um, they don't want me to get angry like they're angry. They don't want me to get upset like they're upset or sad. They, I think what they really want is to be recognized. Oh, yeah. You're and then like the, the process that you're describing yeah. is a little bit like what I feel like we go through together. Mm -hmm. Like, ah, yes, you're angry about the, And then there's this investigation. And then somehow, because I'm not in it with them, yeah. but I'm with them. Yeah. Or I'm not angry in the same, but I'm. But we're still together. Yeah. And then we can sort of hold it together, and then it can kind of come to a level where it's not the only thing that's happening mm -hmm. in the world. I mean, it's kind of what you were saying with youth, right? Mm -hmm. They want you to just hear them. Mm -hmm. well, I know a lot. <laughs> see that they're angry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they don't always necessarily want you to agree with their viewpoint. Unless they're angry in that moment at you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's... Yeah. One more comment and then I have, I have a baby to go put to bed. Or he'll be angry. <laughs> um, I want to add uh, to this that there's that room for friendship like we have with kids for ourselves and our communities together in our practice of sitting with emotions. There's a time when I've been the most angry I've ever been in my life and I felt like those polar bears that are ripping each other's faces off. And yeah. After that seething intensity passed, I was fortunate enough to have a friend just put a hand on my forehead mm -hmm. uh, when I lay down, and that, to this day, has been one of those transformative experiences mm -hmm. where there was the conditions and the wisdom had the space to be seen. Yeah. But without that friendship, I think it would have been a lot harder to find, mm -hmm. to yeah. stick with. Some support. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was one more hand. Just, I just, um, I guess I'm, I still try to, I struggle with how the practice is on the cushion versus the practice day to day. And on the cushion, these emotions come up, and the way I've kind of work with it is through your kind of dissolving, like, when emotion comes up, you're, you're, you're sort of trying to dissolve it with your breath. Does that make sense? Mm. Is that kind of what you're, like, you're staying with the breath, the emotion comes up, and you're kind of, Kind of registers, yeah. Did everybody hear that question? When the emotion comes up, you stay with your breath and try and dissolve the emotion. So, I think that if a strong emotion comes up and you try and stay with your breath, it's very confusing. So when a strong emotion comes up and your primary practice is the breath, you drop the breath. You don't keep focusing on the breath. You let the breath go in the background and you let the dominant object come into the foreground. So don't worry about the breath. 
If an emotion's really strong, just give your attention to the emotion. Feel what that emotion feels like. But you don't have to worry about taking your breath alongside with the emotion. You can let you can you can just uh, let the, the dominant object show up and just leave the breath aside. And then the rain practice, the same practice. Uh, stop, which we could also translate as label, but then it would be lame, lame. <laughs> What's that in French? <laughs> um, <laughs> so stop, allow, right? Label, allow, investigate, don't identify with it. And then as it passes, then bring the breath back again. But that's a really, really good question. But you're not trying to catch where it registers in the body. Uh, you, that could be part of the investigation. As you allow it in, you can say, oh, wow. Like, for example, when people feel anger, uh, the physiologists tell us that some people, all the blood goes in their hands, and some people, all the blood goes in their legs. It's like fight or flight. So do you know who you are? When you get angry, where does the blood go? Do you have a tendency for the blood to go in your hands or a tendency for it to go in your legs? Maybe check that out. Where does the heat go? Is the heat in your gut or is the heat in your hands or is the heat in your legs? So investigate that. Check that out. And then um, it changes and a minute later, you're bored. <laughs> and maybe 20 breaths later, you're completely awake. But you can be mindful of anything, including strong emotions like anger. They don't have to take over. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, allowing it, uh-huh. Yeah. The first meditation I, teacher I ever had, I was living in Detroit, and she used to always say, "Put on your radar, not your armor." It's really good. Put on your radar, not your armor. But when you're sitting. The breath is the radar, and it picks up the anger. Uh huh. And then just keep the radar. Don't put on your armor. That really helped me a lot. But uh, in your meditation practice, it's an important point: is that when something strong is arising, it's okay to let go of the breath, and go to that, and check that out. Sometimes it's hard to do both things when something comes up really, really strong. Okay, great. So, we've done one paragraph of chapter five. (laughs) And um, uh, I've been a little bit scholarly, and I gave Caroline a handout, which she's going to copy for next week. And it's a schema of how chapter five is organized. Because on the surface, chapter five is just this nice poetry about leather, if you've read ahead. Uh, But actually, it has in it almost every single Buddhist teaching. uh, And it goes into it in really interesting ways. 
which just occurred to me today. So I made a little schema. Uh, but it's only handed out next week to those of you who've read it. So, chapter 5 of A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and we're going to work on it for two or three weeks, that chapter. Okay? So, let's finish by chanting.